Lindsay. And I'm Sarah, and together we're the co-founders of Whale Tales, a living library of cetacean stories. Today we're exploring all things spooky, including whale falls and whale graveyards. Plus, we have a somewhat gory whale tale for you, so listener discretion is advised. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> so sit back and enjoy as we dive right in. Okay, so we decided we wanted to do a little thematic Halloween spooktacular for this month's episode, uh, and we're going to start our discussion with probably one of the spookiest things that I know about, about whales, which is their dead bodies and how <laughs> weirdly important they are. <laughs> Um, so we're talking about whale falls. And if you have either never heard the term whale fall or you have and you're not totally sure what it means, it's not just any dead whale body. I know that normally when we think about dead whales, that's a really sad experience. And it certainly is. It's always sad when anything dies. Uh, but in the case of large whales, particularly baleen whales, in certain cases, once they have been killed but or once they die or however that happens, <laughs> when a large whale dies, uh, that body starts to sink. Now, in some cases, it doesn't sink very far <laughs> because they might not be in very deep water. And when that's the case, that's not considered a whale fall. Because if the body of a whale sinks in only, you know, a couple hundred meters of water, the entire body is going to get consumed by a number of different predators. Uh, and that's important to that food web, but not necessarily considered its own ecosystem. So the true definition of a whale fall ecosystem is when the body of the whale falls to a depth greater than a thousand meters or 3,300 feet. And that is the abyssal zone, <laughs> which I always want to say is abysmal, but the yeah. ab <laughs> abyssal <laughs> zone of the ocean. That makes it sound spooky. It's spooky. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and once that happens, some really cool things start to happen in and on the body of that whale. So Sarah, can you tell us what happens? Yeah, so um, we've got a really cool video that the Smithsonian has um, that illustrates how all of this works, but to sort of walk you through that, there's sort of, there's three stages of um, this decomposition, sort of colonization of this um, new ecosystem. And it's kind of like um, the different stages of succession in uh, on a terrestrial ecosystem. So um, the first stage is that uh, hagfish, sleeper sharks come, other sort of mobile scavengers come and eat all the soft tissue off the whale. They'll eat about 90% of the soft of the soft tissue. And they're eating a lot a day, like 40 to 60 kilograms or 88 to 132 pounds. And but that'll take over up to two years to get 90% of the soft tissue away from the because whale. Because they're big. And obviously there's going to be some... Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> because they're really, really big. And obviously there'll be some overlap between these stages, depending on as different parts of the um, of the whale are exposed and um, other individuals can start um, 
having an opportunity to have access to different body parts of the whale. So then stage two is the enrichment opportunist stage. So this is um, after a couple months or after a few months or years, depending on the size of the whale, uh, things like marine worms and crustaceans will start taking up um, residents on and inside the remains. They will colonize bones and all the surrounding sediment that has been contaminated with organic matter, and then they'll start eating up any tissue that's left over by the whales. This also, like, the there's marine worms that can actually digest the bone of, yeah. um, of the so whales, which is really cool. Spooky. Mm, true. So spooky. Yeah, so these whales, or these whales, <laughs> these worms will basically, like, embed themselves in the bone and start, yeah, so that's what it means in terms of colonizing the bones. Um, they're literally colonizing them and breaking them down. And then the final stage is the sulfophilic stage. And this is where basically bacterial decomposition. Um, so we have hydrogen sulfide emitting bacteria start to get established and they are nourishing chemoautotrophic organisms. So basically it's kind of like photosynthesis, that same sort of cycle, except it doesn't require sunlight. It uses the sulfur cycle. Um, so these bacteria break down lipids embedded in the bones, and then they produce um, sulfates and excrete hydrogen sulfide, and then all these chemosynthetic bacteria survive, um, and everything else kind of dies off because of the hydrogen sulfide is so toxic. Um, and then eventually, as these bacterial mats um, consume all the hydrogen sulfide, they then provide nourishment for other, um, these like uh, biomats. Um, provide nourishment for mussels, clams, limpets, snails. This final stage can last between 50 and 100 years, which is crazy. So crazy. Um, this is basically breaking down all the fat that's inside the bones. Um, not the like blubbery fat, but the sort of residual fat after that, um, which is crazy. So the, these um, chemoautotrophic colonies are similar-ish to ones that are found near hydrothermal vents and uh, cold seeps on the ocean floor. So um, that's where there's the seeps and the vents are releasing hydrogen sulfide. And so, yeah, so there's lots of similar similarities between this final stage of a whale fall ecosystem and um, the ecosystems that you'd find near those um, tectonically active areas at the um, ocean floor. So, so cool. So cool. So cool. <laughs> And spooky. And so spooky, yeah. One of the things that's kind of crazy about this, like you just said, Sarah, 50 to 100 years, but the first recorded abyssal... Abyssal? Abyssal. 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 Uh, the first recorded abyssal whale fall was discovered in 1977. So that's like yeah. just 50 years ago. So we don't even know um, what will happen yeah. after this more time, 50, 70, 100 years um, so the first recorded uh, whale fall was discovered by a U.S. Navy bath escape Trieste two in February 1977. The skeleton of this carcass um, was completely devoid of organic tissue, but it had remained intact and collapsed flat on the sea floor. Like that's can you think about that's so crazy to discover? Just yeah. like do to do, I'm in my submersible, which is a pretty crazy thing for in the 70s in general. And then you're just yeah. like, uh, what? Hey, look, yeah. a perfectly formed whale skeleton. Yeah. Uh, so the submersible was able to recover the jawbone and the phalanges, which if you don't know, that's kind of like the finger bones that you can see in <laughs> whale flukes. Um, phalanges is a great word. Um, the whale was thought to be a gray whale based on the bones and the skeleton and the lack of teeth and its location in Santa Catalina. 
Um, the first whale follow ecosystem was discovered uh, by a oceanographer in Hawaii in 1987. So that's even like we know hardly anything about these. This is less than I've been alive. That this has been a thing that we know. Um, the DSV Alvin observed uh, the remains using sonar at. Uh, 1,240 meters, 4,000 feet, and collected the first photographic images and samples of animals and microbes from this community. So that's super cool. Um, a bunch of other ones have been found since by researchers and deep sea explorers and naval submarines. The increase in detection is, of course, due to cutting-edge sonar, as also people can go further down into the ocean because technology. And there's also been some that have uh, been sunk by researchers to do scientific studies, which makes a lot of sense when you can, that's yeah. probably how they got those, some of those firm dates of like, or firm date mm. ranges of like, this is what it happens first. This is who comes first. Yeah. That kind of thing. Um, yeah. And for species supported by these whale fall ecosystems, the University of Hawaii in 1998 discovered almost 13,000 individual organisms representing more than 43 species were living off of one whale. Uh, in the North Pacific Ocean, including a rare species, including rare species of clams, worms, and eyeless shrimp. Talk about spooky. Spooky. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's estimated that over the three stages of decomposition in one whale fall can have support over 190 unique species living on or around it. So this that ecosystem is, so is an intense ecosystem yeah. from one dead whale. Like that is, oh, it's so crazy and so awesome. Yeah. You know what that is? That is the circle of life. <laughs> That's less spooky. Mm-hmm, that is less mm-hmm, spooky. Mm-hmm. But still cool. Um, so yeah, there's a couple videos of live feeds of whale falls that we'll share in the show notes. One's from the BBC and shows the various staging of feeding stages of feeding on a whale fall. And um, there's there's a couple of videos from the um, EV Nautilus, which runs out of the Monterey Bay area. Um, and there, one of them is actually just from the middle of October of this year. They were out doing a live stream for something else, and oops, ran into a whale fall. So. Um, yeah, that's that's what I did at work that day. <laughs> it was very cool. Um, so for something else spooky and skeletal related, uh, Nicole's got a fun flipper fact for us. Ooh, fun flipper fact. Fun flipper fact. Wait, this should be spooky. Fun flipper fact. <laughs> Before I get into the fun flipper fact, the spooky fun flipper fact, I wanted to give our listeners a little behind the scenes look at how I pick fun flipper facts when they're not selected by our lovely patrons on Patreon. Typically fun flipper facts are things that I just nerd out about or Lindsay or Sarah nerds out about, or all three of us nerd out about and think are super cool, weird things that we happen to know about stations that we want you to know too. But in choosing today's fun flipper fact, uh, this is the fun little behind the scenes. I didn't know anything about this before I started researching for it. (laughs) And in fact, we had a totally different fun flipper fact planned for today because when I was putting together our show notes on whale falls, I kept thinking whale falls were called whale graveyards. No. And (laughs) so this is why I didn't even think I told you guys this. Yeah. So (laughs) where it all came from was, I kept calling this episode, as you guys know, the whale graveyard episode. 
Mm-hmm. And in my mind, that was because our discussion was going to be about whale falls, and I kept getting the terminology confused. And I was like, it's a graveyard because there's a whale and it's dead, and that's its grave, but it's home to apparently thousands of animals. <laughs> so then when I started searching whale graveyard, because I had completely forgotten the term whale fall, I discovered the coolest thing. Yeah. Ever. Whale graveyards are crazy. So crazy. So the fun flipper fact of today is about the largest whale graveyard, not whale fall, whale graveyard that has ever been discovered in Chile. And everything that I learned about this just got cooler and cooler and cooler as we go on. Um, so first of all, the whale graveyard is located not just next to the Pan American Highway, but literally, if you look at the sh- pictures we'll have up in the show notes, and I'm sure we'll put some of the pictures on social media as well, like, it's not just, like, oh, next to. You kind of mean think that's, like, maybe a five or ten minute drive off of the highway. No, it's actually, literally, with the true definition of that word, next to a massive highway running straight through Chile. <laughs> And in 2010, they wanted to expand the highway. And so they were doing a dig right next to it. And apparently they already knew there were a lot of whale bones there because they were sticking out of the hill next to the highway. But no one had bothered to, you know, like do anything about that or look at them or study them. And they'd even like nicknamed it Whale Hill. But all of a sudden, when they needed to start doing construction in order to expand the highway, they said they started to notice, oh, there's not just like one or two whale bones here. There's there's a lot. And so they stopped construction on the highway. Uh, And in 2011, they brought in a a team of paleontologists from Chile and the Smithsonian, along with a whole host of other crazy tech specialists, uh, including a 3D digitization staff. And you can, if you have a 3D printer at home, listener, you can actually go to the Smithsonian's website that we will have linked in the show notes about this whale graveyard in Chile, and you can print your own whalebone, <laughs> a prehistoric whalebone, because the Smithsonian digitized all of this. That would look really nice above my bed. Yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, a long, long, long extinct whale vertebrae. Do they have, do they have cool phalange ones? I like phalanges. Oh, I love phalanges. So uh, because, of course, the uh, construction teams were being egged on, or that's not right, the word, that's not the right word to say. (laughs) Anyway, because uh, they really did have a pressing need to finish construction on the highway, they weren't actually given a lot of time to sort of assess the site. They only had, from what I could tell, a couple of months Uh, But what they learned about this whale graveyard in the site in that amount of time is just, it's mind boggling. So ultimately in the section that they were able to study, they found the remains, almost like perfectly fossilized remains of over 40 individual prehistoric whales, uh, primarily a whale ancestor to common modern baleen whales, like the bluefin and minke whales. So, 40 different prehistoric baleen whales all in one place. And when they started looking deeper, it wasn't just baleen whales. 
there was all kinds of other crazy marine prehistoric animals there uh, of like the predator variety. So like big, big predators. There were things called walrus whales, <laughs> which I also didn't know about. It's a prehistoric dolphin species that has walrus tusks. Um, and aquatic sloths, giant sloths that lived in the sea. Of course they were. Um, and I should say most of these fossils were all uh, believed to be from the Miocene. Is that how I pronounce that, Sarah? My prehistoric yeah. friend? Yeah, Miocene. Thank you. From the Miocene period. Um, so when they started looking more closely at sort of the way that these skeletons were positioned and also the way they were fossilized, the really crazy spooky thing came up, which is almost all of the skeletons were, first of all, complete and perfectly fossilized, but also all pointing in the same direction. Oh. They, like, were posed, basically. And almost every one of their bodies looked to be not just pointing in the same direction, but kind of uh, articulated in the same way, one right after the other. They were also fossilized at four distinct times. So ultimately in today's language what this would look like is four mass strandings um and we haven't even talked about the fact that this is in the middle of the desert it's not like right next so the pan-american highway in chile is not right next to the ocean this is a prehistoric shoreline ultimately from where the ocean used to be in chile there were four major mass strandings of marine prehistoric whales so so cool um so after a few years of study in 2014, the researchers who were continuing to work on this, though not necessarily in that place because they did end up building the highway, but who have been studying all the bones that they collected, they've come up with the leading theory as to what caused all of this to happen. And ultimately, apparently red algae was a problem millions of years ago, just like it is now. So it's believed that toxic algae poisoning uh, would have been what could have killed all of these animals in such a short period of time that all of them would have been fossilized at the same time, pointing in the same direction because they would have washed up onto this area, which would have used to have been a shoreline. So it would have been just like you see in mass strandings of cetaceans today. They all would have been sort of right on top of each other, all pointing in the same direction because they would have been coming in off of the surf to beach themselves. So this was happening millions of years ago and all perfectly preserved next to a highway in Chile. <laughs> so crazy. Uh, and spooky. Yeah. <laughs> so if you want to, you know, 3D print your own prehistoric whale skeleton or just look at some crazy pictures of fossilized whales, I highly recommend checking out the link that we have to the Smithsonian webpage in the show notes because it's just one of the coolest things I've ever learned about. So cool and so, so spooky. spooky. Nothing spookier Boom. than graveyards. <laughs> uh, apologies to all of these people who are listening to this the, like three days after this comes out when Halloween is over. But whenever. <laughs> it's, we're right in the middle of it now. So it's yeah. just how it is. And if you listen to Nature Finds a Way, you know I can't stop saying spooky, spooky. all the time. <laughs> Um, so leading into something else a little bit gruesome and spooky, 
uh, is our story for this episode. Um, it's a story from Nicole that she's seen when she was out on the boat. Um, we will say again that this is listener discretion. Um, it is a little bit gruesome and not very pleasant if you're not into natural circle of life killings. Um, so if you know anything, you probably have guessed that this is a story about a Biggs or transient killer whale hunting. Uh, we do have almost 200 Biggs, uh, killer whale stories on our website, which you can see by checking out the category Biggs killer whale on the left-hand side of our page. And we also have over 70 hunting stories, which, um, featuring kills with very graphic images and details, if that. Uh, is something that you would like to be reading about. You can check that out by searching the tag hunt in our search bar on the left-hand side of our website. Um, And we also have lots of other kinds of behaviors you can search if you wanted to read a bunch of stories about breaching, if that is a little bit more happy and cheerful for you. (laughs) Although I'll be warned, Biggs Killer Whales like to breach after they kill, so you might... (laughs) So (laughs) you never know what you're going to get. But come on over, we have lots of stories. For all appetites. Yeah, exactly. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Nick, you want to tell your tell your whale tale? I do. Okay. So, while well, listener discretion is advised, once the story begins, uh, and there is a little bit of a gory end to the story, I can say that there will be, probably to my eternal regret, no photos shared of this story because when I was working as a whale watch naturalist, there were days that I chose not to bring my camera with me on board the boat. I liked having the opportunity to take pictures at times and then I liked having days where I wasn't worried about that and I could just focus on the experience and engaging with my passengers. Unfortunately, this particular story took place on a day that I didn't have my camera and I will probably always be kicking myself for that. But what's done is done. So since there are no photos, I don't remember exactly when this happened, either the year or even the particular day. It was a summer day. It would have likely been in 2013, 2014, maybe. Um, And it would have been either July or August on probably a Friday or a Saturday, because those were my typical days off from my five-day-a-week job, and therefore when I would be out on the whale watch boat. So it started, my day started pretty typically. We were crossing the Strait of Georgia. We were doing a little bit of the introduction to the types of cetaceans that we saw in southern British Columbia, and the types of killer whales in particular that were found in our area. We had the southern residents and we had the bigs and boom, out of nowhere, which is always the best experience. We were the only boat there at that particular time. We were just about to head through the Gulf Islands and huge black fins. Like, yes, we found them. We didn't have to go searching for hours. They're here. We're alone. This is amazing. Uh, and we spent a little bit of time, obviously, just watching the whales and watching the amazing orcas, which we figured out just based on group size. Uh, and I was not particularly good at Biggs ID at this point, but I could tell that this was a, a group of Biggs killer whales and they were Moving pretty quickly, but I wouldn't have said that at the beginning of our encounter with them, they were hunting specifically. They were just 
traveling, which is probably why we didn't notice them. You're also going pretty fast when you're first crossing the Strait of Georgia. So we were lucky to notice them in the first place. And uh, as we spent a little bit more time with them, we noticed that they started to pick up speed. We didn't see anything else in the water. Um, so, you know, they could have just been traveling faster. They didn't change behavior too much. They were still just traveling. And then everything changed. They disappeared. They weren't seen at the surface for what felt like forever, but of course they can't hold their breath for very long. So it's probably only a couple of minutes. And then there was so much white water and so many fins and flippers and tails and splashes. And we weren't close enough because obviously we were abiding by the guidelines to tell what was going on. It just looked like the sea was boiling. And then all of a sudden it was still again. And we're like, wait, okay. So I knew they had caught something or at least were trying to catch something at this point. And then as we watched a little bit more, everybody holding their breath, we saw the porpoise. So yes, listeners, this is a porpoise hunt story. You could stop listening now if you don't want to hear any more and just know that nature is nature and everybody's got to eat. Uh, but for those of you who may be like me, it's not wrong to be excited to watch a hunt. These are hunters. They're incredible predators. And personally, hunt days were some of my favorite days that I've ever had out on the water with these animals. And I had never seen, nor have I ever seen since, a porpoise hunt. And it's just cool. Of course I love porpoises and I don't want to see a porpoise get eaten. But at the same time, this is an amazing predatory experience to be part of and to be able to observe. And it's just cool. And I think almost any biologist would tell you the same. So if you don't want to hear any more, just stop and we'll fast forward and you can move on to the next section of our podcast. But if you do, settle in. All right. So we see the porpoise. The porpoise is trying to ironically, porpoise away from, uh, I can't actually remember exactly how many killer whales were in this particular group of bigs. Uh, I want to say four, but again, since I don't have photos to go back and look at specifically, we're going to just go with fours. I don't know what family it was. Um, but the porpoise was trying to get away. It was quite clearly a harbor porpoise. And there was just, it, I, I had seen seal and sea lion hunts before by bigs. And they're usually unless it's a training hunt where they're trying to help a new member of the pod learn how to hunt, they're usually actually over and done pretty quickly and efficiently. Um, you know, they may try and sneak up on that animal and hit them with their rostrum, the front of their face, stun them, drown them a little bit, like rolling over top of them is a pretty common practice that you see none of that was happening with this porpoise and because i've only seen the one porpoise hunt i have no idea if they're if it's probably their techniques are different with porpoise hunts but there was a lot of slapping and a lot of splashing and particularly peck slaps and tail slaps and splashes and leaps on everybody's part and i do not know how long this went on but you could have heard a pin drop on my boat everyone was so so wrapped in attention at what was happening in front of us. And after lots and lots of splashes and leaps and slaps and noise, that's the crazy, like the noise you could hear on the surface. 
and it was not a particularly calm day either. So it was windy and there was some wave action. It was so noisy. And finally it got still and everybody was back underwater. And then this is your gore warning. I will never forget the next image I saw. Two killer whales rose spy hopping up next to each other through the surface of the water with half a porpoise in each of their mouths. They had obviously grabbed it together underwater, ripped it in half. I know this is quite... I don't even know what the word is to think about from an imagery standpoint. And when they came up with their heads out of the water, each of them had one had a head hanging out of its mouth and the other had a tail. And it was amazing. (laughs) I'm sorry if that offends you. I really am. I understand how hard that is to think about because porpoises are wonderful, amazing cetaceans. We love to. But from a purely predatory instinct capacity, it may be one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in my life. And to the point that like, I don't even remember what happened after that. I just remember seeing this porpoise ripped in half between these two animals. And then I kind of black out. I'm sure that they would have gone back underwater and, you know, shared with the other members of the pod and that there probably was some celebratory leaps after that. But I truly don't even remember what happened after after seeing those two halves of those animals in each of these two animals, the killer whale's mouths, because that is a vision. Again, 100% wish I'd had my camera. But even without the camera, that is a vision that's going to stick in my mind for the rest of my life. And I will be so grateful forever that I had the opportunity to see that because wow nature is powerful so hope you enjoyed that gory not so spooky but definitely halloweeny horror filled story awesome that was such a cool story thanks Nicole uh, if you have a story that you'd like to share with us at Whale Tales, you can email us or you can even send us a voice memo if you'd like to get potentially featured on the podcast. Just e- uh, record a voice memo onto your phone and e- send it to us by email or uh, you can contact us You can contact us through social media um, to figure out the best way to send us your story. Yeah. Hooray! Okay, so we're only going to say spooky like five more times in today's yep, episode. <laughs> um, but because our episode is coming out uh, the day before Halloween, and all three of us love Halloween, because who doesn't? There's candy and costumes, and it's awesome. Uh, we wanted to, as we've already addressed, sort of theme this episode around spooky things. But since when we talk about spooky call to actions, it just gets kind of depressing and sad, because a lot of call to actions are really scary and not just spooky. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least a lot of the reasons why we're talking about calls to action are scary and not spooky. Okay, I think, wanted... I think that's five. Now I don't get to say any more. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, you took all We wanted to give you, if you're listening to our episode on the day it comes out and you're getting ready to either go trick-or-treating yourself, you're never too old. 
never let anyone tell you you're too old to go (laughs) trick-or-treating. Or if you're taking uh, family or friends trick-or-treating, talk about what you can do to have a sustainable Halloween. Yeah, so there's lots of things you can do. And obviously, if we had more time before Halloween, we could give you some more tips on decorations and sustainable costumes and those kinds of things. Um, next just year. Next we'll year. We'll do that pro, next year. Pro tip, don't buy a plastic pumpkin for your candy. Take a pillowcase. It's sustainable and you can fit so much more candy in it. So much more. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but one of the big things is sustainable but safe Halloween candy. Of course, everybody wants to have safe Halloween candy. Having a safe Halloween is the most important thing. Um, so do what you can. Do your research to buy appropriate Halloween candy. Don't give out toothbrushes. Don't be that person. Also, plastic <laughs> toothbrushes are horrible for the environment. If so, if you're going to give out toothbrushes, buy bamboo ones. <laughs> but that's also a lot of money to spend on your trick-or-treaters, and you're still going to get TP'd. Yeah, exactly. If you want to not give out candy, give out raisins, okay? At least they come in cardboard. I feel like, there, I feel like there's got to be somebody out there that's making like actual chocolate or candy or something in a cardboard box. I'm sure box. there that is. That would be a cool yeah. thing to Yeah, and find also out. Smarties if you live in Canada. You yeah. might be confused if you're listening to this in America because those Smarties come in plastic. Uh, but Smarties totally in Canada. Totally different candy also. Totally different. Come in cardboard. So that's a good one. Um, yeah. However, if you live in BC, like us, uh, chocolate bar and candy wrappers can be submitted as part of the London Drugs Recycle BC soft plastic program. So just uh, load up all your candy bars, that all your mini Twix and Mars bar wrappers that you've eaten, and just take it over to London Drugs. And if once you've recycled all your candy, uh, send us your costume pictures, especially if they are ocean or marine mammal themed, and especially, especially if they're made of recycled or reused materials. Yeah, it's so fun. Um, <laughs> Halloween. Halloween. Sorry, this I wasn't is Halloween. This is Halloween. <laughs> We're really excited about this holiday, if you couldn't tell. This is going to diverge into just a full-on singing now. Anyway, uh, I think this brings us to the end of our episode, before we say spooky a hundred more times. Um, As always, we have the What You Can Do page on our link in our show notes, and you can also find it on our website under Tales of Saving Whales, along with the Recycle BC links about what soft plastic and other flexible plastic you can recycle. Um, it's just a list of lots of other great small things you can do every day to help cetaceans, marine life, and the planet. You can also find all of our info on our website, whale-tales.org. That's tales like the story, not tales like the animal. Um, you can find links for our merch, our Patreon, with our new ooh, newsletter perk. Ooh, spooky newsletter. <laughs> it's just over now. It's done. I killed it. Sorry. Yep. Um, our podcast subscription link is on our website, and of course, most importantly, over 600 whale, dolphin, and porpoise stories. Also on our website, if you go to where it says share, you can share your stories. Remember, it's not a big deal, it's not scary, and you don't have to be an expert. If you've seen a cetacean, we would love to hear about it, and we would love to add your story to our library. Um, or you can email us a voice memo, like I said before, to tell us about your incredible cetacean encounter. Thank you again for listening and for supporting us. And a special big thanks to all of our patrons on Patreon. Uh, we'll be back on the last Wednesday of next month with more fun facts, stories, and super nerdy trivia that Nicole's researched for us. <laughs> thanks, everybody, and have a whaley great day.